Welcome to Episode 3 of See, Hear, Speak podcast. In this episode, I speak with Holly Storkel and Kelly Farquharson about their recent clinical forum on speech sound disorders. We discuss topics in that forum, including McLeod and Crow's cross-language review of speech sound norms, which was the most shared ASHA article in 2018. We also discuss variability and eligibility for speech services in schools, thorough evaluation of Arctic-only kids, and researchers and clinicians working together to advocate for best practices. We end our conversation, per usual, with Holly and Kelly describing their current most exciting projects and their favorite children's books. Don't forget to check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com to find a transcript of this podcast, links to articles and resources that we discussed, and more information about Holly and Kelly. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the See, Hear, Speak podcast, the first in 2019. I will start out by having you introduce yourselves. I'm Holly Storkel at the University of Kansas. I'm a professor of speech language hearing, and I'm also an associate dean of academic innovation and student success in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. Um, in terms of my research, I study why some children learn the sounds and words of the language so rapidly while others struggle. And my latest research is really looking at what, what can we do to help the children who struggle. And I'm Kelly Farquharson. I'm an associate professor at Florida State University in the School of Communication Science and Disorders. I'm a speech language pathologist by training, and I direct the Children's Literacy and Speech Sound, or CLASS lab, at FSU. And the mission of the lab is to ensure that children with speech and language impairments achieve classroom success. So to that end, a lot of our work focuses on the ways in which our children who have a variety of communication impairments um, have access to services within school settings, um, how their teachers and their school-based SLPs are able to support them through appropriate services, and other service-related factors that might contribute to how children fundamentally receive services in the schools. Fantastic. So this is uh, kind of a personal podcast for me, too, because I have such a great connection with both of you. So Holly was my co-mentor at the University of Kansas on a dissertation. And she started there when I started my PhD. So I got to see her develop that amazing lab, which was great and fun and have benefited from your mentorship throughout the years. Kelly was my first doctoral student. Um, I like to say it's a little bit like Gilmore Girls because I was a baby and only, <laughs> yes. I had been out three, two, two, three years. And then Kelly became my first doctoral student, so um, she raised me as well. So it's been a nice collaboration there, and it's exciting to see, just to see what you've done. It's, it's amazing. And we both talk pretty fast, so that works, too, for the oh. Gilmore Girls angle. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm not sure about the vocabulary, but hey. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you two have an American Speech Language Hearing Association Perspectives Forum in the Special Interest Group 1, Language Learning and Education, coming out in a few weeks. So what is the motivation for that forum? This is Holly. I uh, wanted to pull that together because uh, actually last year, 2018, was kind of a bad year to be a speech sound. There were, a, <laughs> there were a lot of controversies, and I think it's led a lot of us to kind of re-examine what we think about when we think about speech sound development. So. One of the controversies was about the new version of the Goldman Fristo, the Goldman Fristo 3. Um, there was a lot of chatter on Facebook groups about there being um, too many R words on that particular test and reports that students were scoring uh, much lower, so more students were qualifying for services. Um, we actually did a, a discussion of that on the Clinical Research for SLPs Facebook group to try to dig into that more. Um, and then the, the latest controversy is with the McLeod and Crow norms that were published towards the end of last year that had sort of a similar effect of people feeling like it was new information and it caused people to really kind of question what we know about speech sound development and really how we go about diagnosing speech sound disorders and determining eligibility in the schools. So it felt like a good time to kind of go back to basics and do a forum on that and 
Perspectives is really a great venue for that because you really can talk to the practicing clinicians and um, I think impact practice through having this discussion in kind of a controlled way and getting some of the issues out for everyone to think about. Fantastic. So you mentioned these speech norms and I've heard them often referred to as the quote unquote new speech norms. So why are people saying that these are new? I read the paper. And I know that it was, um, you know, pulling from research that's already been done. It was more of a, a meta-analysis type, so a review, pulling together some ideas across languages about speech development. But why was it thought of as new? This is Holly. I think it was thought of as new just because it was a new publication. <laughs> so it's, it seemed new. It's recent. And so it's a different packaging of, of old things. But that that repackaging did lead to some some shifting if you compare it to any single norm. So I think most people had been using one norm source. They, you know, it was their go-to set of norms. It was the one they had memorized, the one they really knew. And so then, I mean, even if you had just gone to a different older norm source, you probably would have said, oh, hey, I thought R had this age of acquisition, but now this study is saying something different. Um, and so that was part of what came out of that McLeod and Crow paper was that they um, had some um, slightly different ages for some of the sounds compared to any of the single sound norms. So when I taught speech sound disorder at the University of Arizona and then with uh, John Bernthal and in Nebraska, we would dig in quite a bit in that graduate class about how norms are established. What's the history behind them? And it was very surprising uh, when you really start to dig into what's behind these norms that we take as, you know, this is when a child develops a certain, uh, this is the age at which the child develops a certain sound. But when you dig into the science behind that, there's some nuances that are often lost. So how are these norms established and what's the history behind them? Sure. So um, I think a lot of the things that people forget are all of those details, right? We, we, we're used to seeing the chart and just thinking of it as like, that's it. That's the truth. Um, but you're right. There's a lot of complexity behind that. So um, typically norm studies, the ones that we, we usually refer to are ones that are um, a fairly large number of subjects. They're usually cross-sectional, which means that you're looking at kids at different ages. So the norms are not actually a look at how individual children learn sounds over time. It's looking at groups of children at different ages. So that's one piece. Um, the other thing to remember, too, is that most of these norms use um, single word production, um, and typically children are only producing a sound in a couple of words. And so then when, what it means to know a sound is usually that a child produced the sound correctly in, in the two words that they were given for that particular sound. Um, and then the other piece of it is to decide what exactly is the mastery, you have to set some sort of percentage level of the percent of kids at that age who do produce that sound in that way, in that particular criteria. So one common cutoff you see is the 90% the cutoff, that 90% of children produce the sound correctly um, that were at that particular age. Um, so. The, the things to keep in mind is that, one, it doesn't actually reflect individual development. It's looking at these kind of group benchmarks. Um, two, it's uh, not a very large sample that we're looking at, and it's narrow in terms of that single word articulation as opposed to conversation, and that it's kind of arbitrary what we're saying um, is needed for mastery, this 90% level. Sometimes you see a 50% level or a 75% level. Um, so those are some of the pieces that vary across studies. So uh, this is Kelly. I think the other piece that's interesting about this topic to me, um, and Holly and I got the chance to present on some of this information at ASHA in 2018 in Boston. Um, one piece that I think is interesting is this idea um, that norms were actually not established for diagnostic accuracy. The intention was never to use these norms to make a diagnosis. And so I think that's really interesting because I think a lot of clinicians might be trained or might be used to using that information as, you know, this is a cut point that is 
first of all, hard and fast, as opposed to it being arbitrary, like Holly just mentioned, but also that this is the way that I'm supposed to use this information. I'm supposed to use it to make a diagnosis. When really, it was it was just kind of looking at how these develop, how these sounds develop in groups of kids, like Holly mentioned, as opposed to, you know really using this as a hard and fast rule for this child is disordered or not. So do you think that, that um, it seems to me it's probably human nature, right, that we look at these uh, speech norms and we say, this feels good, because you have parents say, when should my child be able to make an R sound? And so you think to yourself, well, that seems like a very straightforward question. I'm a speech and language therapist. I should be able to answer that. When I was teaching class, I would tell my students it, it would be good to say to them, 50% of kids develop an R sound by this age based on these norms. But there's lots of different norms and all the caveats that you mentioned. But that's always a bit unsatisfying, I think, right? So it's then the parents like, well, you answered my question, but not really. That's kind of confusing. What does it mean for my kid, right? So what does it mean for my kid? So tying to what you said, Kelly about you know not using this for diagnostic purposes then why sh what do we learn from norm like why do we even use norms I had a student ask me that once and I thought oh, that's a good question what where do norms fit in our clinical practice so this is Holly I, I think that norms are helpful at giving us some idea of what is typical, but it is the case that you have to think carefully about what you're looking at. So in your example just now about saying, at what age should my child be able to make R? That's not the same as saying at what age should my child master R? So mm -hmm. some, some kids babble R. So some kids can make R quite early, but are they using it appropriately in every single word of the language that requires that? No. So, so those are different kinds of questions. So um, I think the main thing in terms of using it diagnostically is that it, it does help us compare children to uh, what we consider might be um, normative, um, but we do have to keep in mind some of the weaknesses of the norms and also what they are reflecting and what they aren't reflecting. So sort of this idea, for example, that 90% um, of the children produce the sound correctly at a certain age, that doesn't mean that none of the children produce the sound correctly before that age. Normally, kids are saying sounds and trying them out in different words, and they might not have mastered it, but they're at least showing signs of being able to move towards mastery um, or being able to produce the sound in imitation or some of those other things that would give us an idea that the child is starting to develop their ability to, to do this. Um, so in terms of using it diagnostically, it's one piece of the puzzle, but it's not the whole puzzle. So we have to keep in mind what developmental norms tell us and what they don't tell us and make sure that we fill in some of the information that they don't tell us through other sorts of sources. I agree and I think another, this is Kelly, I think another interesting point is um, that there's there are no prerequisites with respect to the order of acquisition either and so it's not the case for instance that you know some of the earlier developing sounds that we we know do develop early on in, in babble and in first words, typically include some stop consonants, so B and P and T and D. Um, and so we think of those as earlier developing, and we contrast those to what we think of as later developing, like R and L and S and maybe TH. Um, but it's not the case that you need to first acquire the stop consonants, the earlier developing sounds, before you can acquire the later developing sounds. And so I think that's another important point that sometimes I think trips us up a bit in clinical practice because we also might mistake that information as helpful for choosing targets for therapy. And that can be problematic too because it doesn't necessarily mean that we need to first work on sounds that should have developed earlier before we can work on sounds that should have, I'm using air quotes, um, developed later um, because there's no particular hierarchy or prerequisite for order of acquisition. So. A child can and should be able to produce an L or an R, um, even if they can't produce something that's that's maybe typically thought of as earlier developing. So I think that can be actually a one way that the norms might trip us up a bit in our clinical practice, um, because they make us think that there's this specific order we have to do our service delivery, and that often ends up taking a lot longer than a different kind of service delivery approach. Now that makes a lot of sense. 
I also, it, what struck me too about the paper tying to this is that there was no mention, at least unless, maybe I missed it, but I didn't see a mention of like S blends, for instance. So patterns that you might expect. So you see like a child will produce an S by a certain age in a certain language. But what does that mean for S blends and those, those targets that we often see in clinical practice? This is Holly. I think um, maybe the reason, well, one, one reason why some of the blends didn't come into play, I think, in the, the McLeod and Crow paper is that a lot of times the developmental norms have kind of ignored um, some of the clusters and things like that or, or have just put that together with S or put it together with R as opposed to pulling them out separately. So that's kind of one issue is how well our, our norms have considered the clusters. Um, and some of that comes from, you know, usually when you do these norms, you don't want the kids to have to do like two hours of testing. So you kind of have to focus in on what you really need. And so sometimes I think the blends have gotten chopped off um, for in favor of the singletons. Um, the other reason though, in, in the McLeod and Crow paper, I think that that might have uh, further been part of the issue um, is that their emphasis was on looking at um, uh, development across languages and blends are not common across languages. So English is kind of crazy on the blends. We, we have all kinds of clusters. You can put pretty much anything together, um, but many other languages don't have blends at all or have very restricted kinds of blends. Um, so that might have been another reason why that wasn't highlighted as well. Um, but certainly in terms of our clinical practice, having developmental norms for, for clusters uh, can be a really important piece to um, thinking about what children ought to be able to do at particular ages. You know, that, may, that might address an uh, observation I made about the paper. And I found it interesting that in the paper, with the focus really on speech sounds across languages, it was interesting that some of the sound characteristics, such as manner, really predicted how early sounds were developed in these across languages, but some didn't. So, for example, I noticed that English R was categorized as late developing, but in Japanese it was middle developing, but it was a reverse for the Z sound. So it seems interesting that there's this idea of, of universal norms that was discussed in this paper, but it doesn't always apply, and maybe that's because of you know, ambient language that they're hearing. Maybe it is some of these blends, too. You know, if ours are being tested in blends, I could see why that might be a little later than in another language that might not have as many R blends. Did that I guess I, I was wondering if you could speak to that aspect of the paper, this idea of universal norms. Sure, this is Holly. Um, so I think we um, do have this idea that there's some characteristics that that tend to be similar across languages, and in manner would be one that that has been claimed that there are kind of. Uh, simpler or less complex manner categories and then more complex ones and that that uh, tends to be uh, similar across languages so you tend to get kind of similar groupings of sounds um, in terms of the developmental progression across languages but it's also clear that there are influences from everything else that's going on. So uh, there are some um, kind of older papers. Jan Edwards was one of the people who, who looked at this a little bit and looked at, for example, frequency of occurrence of a sound in a language. Um, and the more you hear a sound or the more it's used in your language, that does tend to have at least some impact on when it's acquired. Um, so that's the place where you might get that kind of small adjustment of, um, you know, R being earlier or later. Um, and then as you indicated too, there might be other ways that the sound um, operates in the phonological system that then might push push your acquisition earlier or later, depending on how else how else it works. Um, and we see that in um, other aspects of language too. So in grammar, um, sometimes you'll see certain grammar features being um, learned earlier or later because it's potentially a little bit simpler in that particular grammar or a little bit more difficult in that particular grammar, depending on what else is going on in the language. So you noticed, or you noted in your ASHA talk last year, some take-home messages when speech pathologists are considering speech norms in their clinical practice. So with all of these caveats in mind, how should speech norms be used in clinical practice? 
Well, I think we don't want to throw the norms out. I think the norms do have value. So we, we that's not the message is not get rid of them, but to just really think about what they're what they're telling you. And so I think the key things are that norms can't be reduced to a single age or a single cut point. Um, we don't know the diagnostic accuracy of norms. And this is something Kelly hinted at that the norms weren't really intended to sort children into those who are disordered and those who are normal. So we haven't done that kind of work that you see, for example, on standardized tests where you actually look at how well different scores on the test can accurately sort children into those who have disorders and those who don't have disorders. So I think we should think of the norms more as guidance for one thing. Um, and, and if we can look at development in a broader sense than just a single age, that's helpful. So one of the things we sh I show in my article in the forum is how you can look at like the 75% age of acquisition, the 90% age of acquisition, and actually in the SMIT norms, all of the data are there. So you can look up the percentage of children at a particular age who are producing a sound correctly. And that's another good piece of information so that you can get that broader sense of what is normal. And then the second piece is that you cannot use norms just by themselves. Um, again, it's one piece of the puzzle, but it's not the whole thing. So you always need multiple measures. Um, and that's another factor that's illustrated in my article in the forum, where I show how um, what, a, what a standardized test score might be for a child who has a particular pattern. And the thing to keep in mind is what is that standardized test score telling you? Well, it's telling you something about the total number of errors that the child is making and how that compares to their peers. And then you can look at the norms and sort of see are the sounds that the child's making errors on, are those ones that are typical at their age? And you have to kind of be able to put both of those things together. Um, because if you look at um, just the norms by themselves, you, you aren't getting that sense of is this overall number of errors age appropriate or not. So this seems very reasoned to me, makes a lot of sense. So why, why are these topics controversial? So you said that right in the beginning, that there was some controversy about these norms, there's controversy about the tests you use. Why? Well, I have one thought. This is Kelly. I. Um, I, and Holly and I have talked about this a little bit too, but I think there's um, something to be said for what you hinted at earlier, Tiffany, which is this, um, it being slightly unsatisfying to not get a direct answer about when when should my child be able to do this, right? And, and we do, um, you know, parents really rely on milestones to make sure that they're taking action if their child needs support in some area of development and so whether it's when should they start eating certain eating certain foods and when should they start walking and when should they start talking those milestones are important and so it's satisfying to know here's the here's when it should happen and your child is doing it and I think as clinicians then um, it's also satisfying to say this is when your child should be able to do this and so as a result it's still normal that they're not doing it so I'm not going to provide services and so in some ways, I think it's controversial because this has been something that a lot of cl clinicians have come to understand as a reliable metric of kind of determining who might receive services or not. And the fact that that, that um, it might not be as reliable as they thought it was, and that can be disconcerting. Um, I think there's also, importantly too here, is that this is no one's fault. This was not anything anybody has done wrong along the way. Um, and I'm not quite sure what the origin of of the, the heavy reliance on the norms, where that came from. Um, but it doesn't mean that a clinician has been doing it wrong if they've been adhering to the norms quite strictly. Um, I think now it's important that we use this as an opportunity to expand the way we think about speech sound development and kind of as Holly said, use the norms but for what they're intended and for what they tell us as opposed to using it for the only um, the only piece of data that we're considering. And so I think that's that's part of the controversy is it's it's uncomfortable. It's kind of bucking the trend. It's not what we have typically been doing. Um, so it might make us feel like we've been doing something wrong as clinicians or it might make us feel like, well, gee, if I can't rely on that, then how do I know? And and that can that can feel a little uh, uncomfortable. Is it also a situation that it could feel like the floodgates are going to open? So I've seen on the clinical forums, it's been a long time since I've had clinical practice, 
but I do know caseloads are an issue. So if you've been holding to clinical, you know, speech norms um, and standards that say, I'm not going to address R till eight, for instance, and now you have these quote unquote new speech norms, which are highlighting the variability and saying, you know, maybe it's better to actually look at this as early as five or six, uh, in particular in the English language, they might think like, oh, now I've got to treat all these extra kids. How does this affect my caseload? So what do you say to that um, concern? Yeah, this is Holly, and I, I actually, as Kelly was talking, was making a note to, to address that, because I think that is a huge reason for the reaction, that it's it's the impact that it has on clinical practice and um, the suggestion that children potentially need to be picked up earlier. And I think you're absolutely right. The caseload sizes are kind of crazy. <laughs> um, and that's that's not even having to do with, with speech sound disorders. That's just in general. I think it's really a crisis in our field that the caseloads are so high that it really does impact our clinical practice. Um, so to the first point, I actually do think we probably should be picking up kids earlier for speech sound disorders. Um, and I don't think we have the clinical evidence yet to fully support that in a strong way. But if you look at more what we know about normal development, the window for learning phonology closes, and it closes early. And we can figure that out just by looking at our second language learners. Um, you know, our second language learners who are trying to pick up the phonology of a language later in life, we see that they struggle a lot with pronunciation of certain sounds and that it's really difficult for them to figure out the phonology of a new language. Um, and other studies show us that. I mean, we can also look at the infant research and see how infants are, are uh, born with the ability to make all of the distinctions in all of the languages and hear those differences. But by six months, their listening and hearing starts to narrow down to just the sounds that are used in their language. Um, so we see this narrowing of the ability to learn phonology, which suggests that if we worked with children earlier and picked them up earlier, they might be at a point where their phonological skills are more flexible and that they would actually make change more quickly and with less therapy time. Um, so I think the idea of picking up kids earlier is a good one, but it is difficult to implement because of the caseloads. So I think one of the important things to talk about is how we can, as a, as a group, support our clinicians in advocating for reasonable caseloads because it really affects all aspects of our practice. Um, and, and I understand where those clinicians are coming from um, in terms of, you know, I, I can't even pick up the kids who absolutely do qualify based on you know, what I thought was true. And now if I've got to pick up even more, even earlier, you know, there's no place to put those kids. And that's really a problem. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, there's some other interesting pieces there that, uh, you know, I agree with Holly's points on um, some of our research needs to really start tilting towards making sure that we're examining how some of the recommendations from research can be implemented in a school-based setting. It's a very challenging setting. Uh, there's a lot of moving parts, caseload being one of the biggest issues, but there's, there's a lot of other moving parts there that make school-based practice really challenging. And so our, our research really needs to start considering how we can create ecologically valid um, recommendations that can be implemented in the schools and so that that SLPs can consider the research implications because um, I think right now it's really challenging to do that because there's there's so many other things happening caseload being part of that paperwork being another part of it um, a lot of SLPs might be itinerant meaning they have multiple schools that they need to provide you know that they provide services to um, so they're not just in one building they're traveling throughout the day um, and then that that doesn't take even take into account what their caseload um, not just headcount of the caseload, but really the workload. So they might have, you know, a caseload of 50 kids who are in the general education classroom for the majority of the day, with the exception of once or twice a week speech therapy, is a very different caseload than 50 kids who are in inclusive, self-contained classrooms that are nonverbal or have complex communication disorders, perhaps use augmentative and alternative communication, perhaps have a variety of medically complex disorders, you know, that's a different caseload. And so those headcounts aren't um, synonymous. You know, we can't, we can't say that 50 kids on one caseload looks like 50 kids on another caseload. And so there's a lot we need to consider there to make sure that we're 
we're making suggestions that SLPs can take seriously. What are some of the ideas that you can say, uh, you know, some tips for how to make this manageable on your caseloads? I, I know in the perspectives uh, forum, you do discuss some of those ideas and also you did in your, in your ASHA talk as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm, this is Kelly. I'm pretty big on advocacy, and um, a lot of my work has also looked at some of these um, bigger issues like SLP's job satisfaction and their self-efficacy and how their caseload size contributes to the kinds of decisions that they make. And so um, I think a lot of schools, one thing we have going for us in terms of advocacy is that a lot of schools are, the administration, are data-driven. They want to be able to talk about the science that their education is based on. And they want to be able to think about using research-based methods in their classrooms. And so then one way to have a conversation with them about these issues is to use the research and say, these are some other ways we can use the literature to support practice in the schools beyond what we're teaching the kids, but also to ensure that we're creating a work environment that's conducive to the services that these children need. And so, you know, for instance, we know a lot about job satisfaction with respect to caseload size. And so SLPs, not surprisingly, with smaller caseloads, um, report higher job satisfaction. That's empirically supported in the literature, so we can share that information with our administrators. Um, there's also been work looking at what actually makes a caseload feel manageable. And it does include the size of the caseload, but it also includes the SLP's years of experience, as well as how collaborative their environments are in which they're working. And so administrators and teachers, building principals, have a big job to do to ensure that SLPs are working in an environment that feels supportive and collaborative, feels that their voice is heard, feels that they're making a contribution to the team. Um, and then those that years of experience piece you only gain those years of experience if you stay at that school, if you stay in that practice and you don't get burnt out, right? And so the, a lot of school administrators are interested in not just recruitment of speech pathologists, but retention. And so that retention piece we know is really important because the more years of experience you have, the more you feel as a clinician like your caseload might be manageable. At least this is empirical data. There, there's, of course, going to be exceptions to this. Um, and then some, some other work has actually shown how important job satisfaction is to the quality of therapy that speech pathologists implement. And so that's another really big piece, too. If we're, if we're conducting better therapy that's of higher quality, because we're happier in our jobs, we can presume then children will be off of our caseload sooner and we'll be able to use our resources more efficiently. And so these are all points that are empirically supported, that are available in the literature, that I think we can use as kind of talking points to school administrators to make sure that we're we're not just complaining about our work setting and about how overwhelmed we are, but we're actually using the literature to say, here's why it's important that we improve this practice. This is Holly. I would add to that, too, that uh, I think we need to organize as a group. Um, you know, individual clinicians can do some of this, but at the same time, we need to be sensitive that individual clinicians are, are overwhelmed <laughs> with their caseload. Mm -hmm. So adding on the advocacy piece is just another piece to try to add yeah. on. And right. so I think this is something that we need to be thinking about among probably our state associations of how our state associations can craft this message and bring this message more broadly um, for all SLPs to all employers about really the impact of high caseloads and try to make that argument um, as a group rather than forcing each individual SLP to, to make that argument. And I think especially in the schools, um, school administrators don't have a good grasp of what SLPs do. Um, and so that's a real barrier. You know, I think um, the administrators look at SLPs and think, you know, you should be able to see as many kids as a classroom teacher, uh, you know, not understanding the types of services we provide and the kind of intensity and, and many of the other things that, that Kelly just ran through. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a long argument for an individual SLP to have to kind of lay all of the groundwork of helping others understand what our job is and how we what we need to be able to do it well. So if we could craft that message at a more organizational level and um, kind of have one voice on that particular issue, I think that would really help us get some movement here. So I've been involved in some advocacy for dyslexia for children with developmental language disorders and 
the difference between those two that struck me the most is that when you have dyslexia, there's the International Dyslexic Association, Dyslexia Association. There's tons of information out there. A lot of misinformation, but there's tons of information. It's a household name. I mean, people know what that is. Developmental language disorder is not. There's a movement now to create more awareness. And, you know, a website, dldandme.org, um, you know, educating parents, professionals, um, giving that information for advocacy. But I don't see that same thing happening with speech sound disorder. I think it needs to be the next the next group that we focus on, and, and it can happen in parallel with these other groups. I, um, I want, Kelly, for you to talk a bit about the perspectives paper you wrote, because you hit on something that I hear often, and that is, well, the child's just our tick. It's uh -huh. just speech sound disorder. So even in clinical practice, these are the kids that are seen first by training clinicians, because it's thought of as, that's, that's easier. It's easier to deal with. Um, but what I think is missed and a lot of it's highlighted in the work that we've done, Kelly, and many others, that speech sound disorder is not just our tick, and that there's other, um, you know, um, skills that are developing at the same time, and that speech sound can be foundational for these critical skills. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, and and I agree. There's there's a lot more to the story with these kids, and and thanks for giving me the the chance to talk about this because this is something I'm really passionate about. Um, and and thanks again to Holly for the leadership on the forum that's coming out in um, Sigwan Perspectives. Um, we've all all the authors and the and the articles in that forum uh, responded to some cases that that Holly provided us, and so we were able to kind of create at least I hope, a unified message with respect to what this might look like um, from a variety of perspectives. And so um, the way that I think about these kids is, um, you know, speech sound production is always a motor act and a linguistic act. And so we, I think we try really hard to put speech sound production into either articulation or phonology. And we really want desperately for it to stick kind of in that box. And so we can say, this is an articulation kid, so I don't have to provide services, or it's different. Um, or this is a child with a phonological disorder, and it looks like this and sounds like this, it's different. Um, and really, they, they exist along a spectrum, and they're quite that's quite the same thing. And so I think we've spent a lot of time trying to um, separate two constructs, articulation and phonology, that are ultimately the same thing, that include both a motor act and a linguistic meaningful act. And so in doing so, I think we've um, possibly done a disservice to some of these children by saying things like, it's just our tick, meaning your communication impairment isn't as important as somebody else's. And I, I think that's really unfair to these children Related to that, we know a lot more now about some of the underpinnings of that of that inability to produce a speech sound. So perhaps it is more rooted in a motor deficit. That's a possibility for some kids. But a lot of kids, it's kind of grounded in even maybe a mild phonological deficit. And so their speech sound errors might not necessarily present in the form of what we think of as a phonological pattern, per se, but there still might be some underlying weaknesses related to their knowledge of the phonological system. We see that manifest in their ability to use and understand or participate in phonological awareness tasks like rhyming and blending and deleting. We see this manifest as issues with decoding, and for a lot of kids, we see this as issues with spelling. And so in a lot of very interesting examples, we see, um, and I, I highlight one of these examples in, in my article in the perspectives piece, um, a very interesting example of a direct um, use of a speech sound error in spelling. So there's an example of a boy that I highlight who uses an F instead of a TH in his speech sound production. Um, so something like thumb instead of thumb, which is probably hard to hear that, but an F instead of a TH. And in a spelling measure we gave him in a study in my lab, um, he used the letter F at the beginning of a bunch of words that should have started with the, the grapheme TH. And so he was showing that he's got this fundamental disconnect between how his speech is produced and how that connects to the letters, how the phonological system is mapping onto the orthographic system. And so that's really interesting to me because it's, it's showing how complex this process is. I think that particular child is one who, by, by all accounts, most speech pathologists might say, he's just our tick. It's an F for TH substitution. 
if this is typically developing, it'll go away. But I think what we need to do is look a little bit deeper and say, well, let's just take a look for this kid and see, is it impacting other areas in which this child is using phonology? And so we can look at phonological awareness. And then depending on the child's age, we can look at their decoding word reading skills and we can look at their spelling skills. And again, that's all dependent on their age, but that can give us some really robust information to help us figure out, is it appropriate for us to be saying, this is a mild issue, it is affecting one sound, and it doesn't really seem to be impacting other areas in which this child is using phonology. Or should we be saying, actually, it looks like even though it's just one sound, there's a lot happening here that's impacting other areas of language that use phonology. Um, and that can start to bleed into word learning, too. The, you know, Our ability to learn new words relies heavily on our phonological use and understanding. And so that's, that's, I think, one piece of it that, that is really important for us to consider for these kids is that a single sound error can still be detrimental to intelligibility, to literacy, to self-confidence, to the perception that others have of you. Um, there's some interesting and unfortunate research looking at how teachers perceive children who have even one sound in error. Um, and they, per they um, perceive them as having lower cognitive ability even though their issue is one single sound, uh, the production of one single sound. And so that's, that's really powerful to know that that can have, um, it can change the way that someone views you. And so we need to consider it as just as important as any other communication impairment. I think that works so critical too, because you often hear um, when you're working in schools, clinicians will say, well, they have, you have to show a functional educational deficit. And that can be difficult um, with speech sound disorder. The research you're highlighting is really critical to show that it does have a functional impact on the way that you're perceived and also on your educational outcomes, such as reading and spelling and language skills. So that's, I think, a really important aspect. Thank you for highlighting that work. Um, the, uh, the last thing I'll, I'll discuss here is going back again to the advocacy and what we can do as a field with speech sound disorders. And I wondered if you could talk a bit about, as kind of a final note in this, in this vein, what do you hope clinicians take from the clinical forum and perspectives how do you hope that it impacts their advocacy? <laughs> uh, this is Kelly. I'll, I'll start. Um, I think one thing is that um, I view us all on the same team. And so I hope that there continues to be improved conversations between clinicians and researchers. And I hope that this forum, among some others that have come out recently, including yours, Tiffany, and LSHSS on dyslexia, I think some of these forums, I hope, highlight um, how desperately researchers want to help clinicians and how we view um, the importance of clinicians in, in this conversation. And so I think that's one big piece of it that's probably not explicitly obvious, but I think is a really important takeaway is that we do this work because we care a lot about these kids too. And our our actions in the research realm are, are two-pronged. And one is to help the children that we all are interested in helping support, but the other is to help the clinicians. And so I hope these papers are viewed as useful ways to think about this this disorder, which truly is complex. You know, I think we, we want to think of this as, and maybe it's not as medically complex or um, technologically complex as some other disorders we may work with or treat. Um, but it's still, I think there's not an SLP out there who hasn't at some point kind of banged her head against the wall thinking, how am I going to get this kid to make an R sound, right? It's, it's challenging. It's a complex disorder. It's complex to treat. And like Holly said, the sooner we start, the better as a result of that. And so um, I think I'm, I'm hoping that, that clinicians who read this, these articles um, really kind of feel our passion for this population and, and feel that this is another way for us to keep the conversation open with ways that we can support clinical practice. This is Holly. I would kind of add to that. I, I, 
I hope that they come away with an idea about uh, best practice and how to incorporate some of this newer information into their practice and, um, you know, aren't aren't confused or in a muddle, which is kind of what we've been seeing in some of the, the Facebook discussions of, of not really knowing how to parse this or what to do with it. So I, I hope that comes through. But I also hope that, just as Kelly was describing, I hope that people come away with an understanding of the need to serve this population. And I think the way the conversation has has been has been more like this is the time I have on my caseload and this doesn't fit whereas it should be something more like this is what needs to be on my caseload and this is how we need to get there so I think as a field we've sometimes just been satisfied with what we've been given and we shouldn't be satisfied by what we've been given we need to fight for what we actually need and so I hope that we come away with that that feeling of, you know, this is this is a time um, in society where we need to march and, you know, <laughs> and do, do these kinds of things and, and, you know, kind of speak out on social issues. And I think we need that in our field to say, you know, uh, 30 minutes twice a week and this number of kids and, and whatever, that that's what we're given, but that's maybe not the optimal things that we need, the optimal environment that we need to really serve this population well. And so we need to be thinking about how, how do we marshal our forces? And again, how do we work together to marshal our forces and say, this is really what we need to do this well. And here's the impact of being able to do it well. And so Kelly made a lot of really good arguments along those lines. But I, I hope that people come away with that feeling of, you know, we need to work together and we need to really fight for this particular population and make sure that they get the services that they need along with the other populations that we serve as well. So it's not trying to, you know, take away from one to give to another, but really saying to the people who make these decisions about how many SLPs there are in schools and that type of thing, this is what we really need to be able to do this job well. That's fantastic. And I think it's just so empowering for clinicians to hear this and, and thinking about the connections between research and practice that we're all on the same page working together towards a common good. And I think that uh, what struck me about this population too, in studying multiple populations of children with communication disorders, oftentimes the speech pathologist is the one to advocate for these children. You know, when I work with children with dyslexia, you know, you have the teacher, the reading specialist, the special educator, the speech pathologist, and language disorders similar. Lots of disorders have have multiple kind of team approaches, but with children with speech sound disorder, it's not that uncommon for the speech pathologist to be the one person, especially early on, that has to advocate for that child and make sure that they do have the educational support, well-being, um, and social-emotional development. And so this is this is so helpful to shine the light on this important topic, which I think can be overlooked at times. Um, okay, I'm going to turn our, as we wrap up to a different topic, but it's it could be in the same vein. I want to know what you're working on now that you're most excited about. Sure, this is Holly. Um, I have a, a grant from NIH where we're, we're doing a preliminary clinical trial of interactive book reading. Um, and so this is something I'm sure clinicians are familiar with. An adult reads a book to a child and then you attempt to teach them something within the context of this book. Um, and the something that I'm working on is how to teach new words to children who have developmental language disorders. Um, so we've been working on this project for, for five years um, and we've got another five years that we're going to be working on it. Um, we've um, established uh, the intensity of the treatment um, and some of the uh, issues with what the format should look like. Um, but what we're seeing really is that uh, uh, not all children benefit from it. So one thing we're trying to understand is who does this work for, who does it not work for? And the other thing that we're seeing is we could get good learning during the treatment, but the kids don't actually remember the words very well once you you know, pull them off of active treatment. Um, so we're working on um, doing more active testing and kind of more engagement in the book reading from the child's point of view to see how that will boost their learning and hopefully their, their long-term retention of words. Fantastic. And this is Kelly. Um, well, just starting a new position at Florida State. I'm excited about a lot of things that I have going, but I'll focus on one particular project in which we're really trying to get to um, 
a, a way to fully examine how speech sound production errors impact spelling. And so um, towards that end, um, I've been working with um, a researcher in the School of Ed here at Florida State, Nicole Patenteri, and we're developing a coding scheme that's going to allow us to look at the spelling patterns of children who have speech sound disorders and see if we can figure out uh, the kinds of errors that they make and how related those errors are to their speech sound error patterns in their spelling. Um, so I'm really excited about that because I think that's going to give us some interesting information beyond what we already know about spelling with respect to the kinds of phonological and orthographic and maybe morphemic um, errors that children might make, now we're going to also add the layer of looking at their speech sound production and then seeing the ways in which that um, is, is being manifested in their spelling, if at all. And I think that will be useful information for us to really think about the connections between speech sound production and literacy, including spelling, but also really thinking more broadly about decoding and phonological awareness and, and those types of skills. Um, so I think that's that's what I'm most excited about right now. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, it'll We'll keep it on the horizon for sure and be looking at yeah. that work. Uh, the last question I always ask guests is, what is your favorite children's book? And this can be a book that you read as a child or one that you're loving right now. This is Holly. I'm uh, My son is actually 12 and in middle school. And so it's interesting because now he's reading some of the things that I remember reading and kind of discovering some of the books that, that I liked and, and he's discovering them on his own. Like I'm not a terrible parent, I guess, cause I'm not giving him a book. Uh, but one thing that I've, has been kind of fun to revisit is he's found Judy Bloom and oh, I loved fun. reading all the Judy Bloom books. It was like, Oh, I've totally forgotten about these books, but how much I just loved those. Um, that was like an author that I read all the time myself in middle school and, you know, just devoured all of her books. Um, so that's been kind of fun to um, talk with him about what he's reading and, and he loves them just as much, which that's also interesting that they're as appealing to boys as they are to yeah. girls. So. Yeah, across the generations. I mean, it's, that's very cool. Yeah. And I, this is a hard question for me because I love children's books. So I'm going to answer it in two ways, which is probably not exactly what you're looking for. Hey, but I have been, <laughs> I have been loving the Elephant and Piggy books. Huh. Um, so um, there's uh, a character, and the the author is Mo Willems, and there's an elephant and a piggy, and they have these fantastic conversations. And one of the things that I love about the books is they use a lot of speech bubbles, which I think are really helpful when we're reading to kids and talking about whose whose perspective is it and who's currently speaking. Um, and he also has he plays with font size and font type a lot too. And so when um, when one of the characters is really trying to make a point, there might be a two page spread that is just comprised of an entire speech bubble and huge font then I think that's really a fun way to show the importance of print when we're reading um, but I think my all-time favorite book is as you probably remember Dr. Seuss's The Sneetches yeah. and I just love that book I think it's such a fun story it's also has a nice social piece about inclusion and um, equality but there's also a lot of s blends in that book and so it's a fun one to use in therapy because there's a lot of ways to target s correct S production and S blend production. Um, and I just really love Dr. Seuss. So I think that ultimately the Sneetches is my favorite book. Oh, that's awesome. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about the forum and some of these important issues for clinicians. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, open access articles, and speaker bios. Thank you for listening, and good luck to you, making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.